Hello, and welcome to Making Christ Known, a podcast from Adairsville Baptist Church in Adairsville, Georgia. This podcast features Senior Pastor Eric Sorrell and his sermons designed to make Christ known in Adairsville and beyond. For more information about Adairsville Baptist Church, visit us on Facebook or online at adairsvillebaptistchurch.org. In this episode of the Seven Churches series, Pastor Eric preaches about the church in Pergamum from Revelation chapter 2. This church experiences rebuke from God for compromising their beliefs. For Christians today, this message will help us remember that God is jealous for the total love, adoration, and commitment of His people. We reflect on this biblical imagery. God's Word convicts us, a sword that cuts away our sin, but brings us healing and opportunity for new life. And now, here's Pastor Eric. I want to ask you this question this morning, what is church? What is church? How would you define church? Church is not uh, a building, although sometimes we define it that way, right? I go to church, we think of church as this, this structure we are in. Church, what is church? It's not a building. Church is also not a program, right? We think of church, well, that's what you do Sunday morning for the the hour. Church is really this, it's people. That's that's the biblical definition of church. It's always people. Uh, When we would tell the New Testament people we're going to church, that would be odd to them, right? No, you are the church. You You don't go to church, I am church. What is church? Maybe a good definition is this, it's the people of God on mission for God. Your church. I'm church. A called out people. The people of God. And we have this mission. It's God's mission. We have this purpose. It's not man's purpose. It's, it's God's purpose. And we find this out in, in Scripture. We find this truth is that Jesus knows His church, right? Jesus knows His, His people. Jesus owns the church. Not the pastor, not the, not the people, not the church member that's been here the longest. It's, it's Christ's church. And Jesus always has a message for His church. I believe that Jesus has a message this morning for for this church. If you've been with us now for the the past couple of weeks, we're going through a series on the seven churches in Revelation. So if you have your Bible, I ask you to open it up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Christ's messages to His church. The first church that we looked at was the church at Ephesus. We noticed this about the church at Ephesus, that that God, Christ, had their hands. And He had their head, but He didn't have their heart. He said this, you've forsaken your first love. You know a lot of stuff, you're doing a lot of things, but the love relationship, it's it's just falling away. And so He told that church at Ephesus, go back and do the works you used to do at first. That was the loveless church. Last week we looked at the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, Christ really didn't have a a negative message, a word of of condemnation or correction to say to them. The church at Smyrna, they were under persecution. They were under affliction. And it was tough for them, but it had purified them in a lot of ways. And and Christ's message to the church at Smyrna was this, really, that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. Hold on. Just be faithful. You'll receive this crown of life. And this morning we come to the third church in this series, and it's the church at Pergamum. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is the church at Pergamum. Perhaps it wasn't a church building, right? 
Maybe not even one central church. This was the church of Pergamum in the city of Pergamum. Maybe in a lot of different house churches. And, he, and God writes to his, to his people and He says, I have a message for you, you are, who are my people on, on my mission. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12-17. through 17. The words of Jesus. Maybe, maybe red letters in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast My name, and you did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, My faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Or God Almighty, we plead the blood of Jesus over our, our souls, Lord, over our lives. He is our, our great mediator, our faithful witness, or the one who forgives us just as we are. Lord, we ask now that Your Spirit would, would cover us. Cover me, Lord, and, and may Your Word be lifted up. God, may, may You speak to us from this church's message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, first, I want you to notice the place. The place. We move now to the city of Pergamum. If you were to dra- travel 45 miles north from Smyrna, after that 45-mile journey, you would come to the city of Pergamum. In Pergamum, the city itself, it sat on a, on a high hill. It was a center of worship. The truth about this place is that you could worship just about any god in the city of Pergamum that you wanted to worship. The name Pergamum itself means this, married. Married. We'll come to that. I think it's, it's more than just symbolism. Pergamum had one of the first temples to Caesar. You know, emperor worship. That cult was alive right there in Pergamum and they had that, that great temple. There was also a temple to Asclepius, the serpent god of healing. Uh, maybe perhaps this first modern day spa of just kind of natural medicine where you could go and, and maybe pray to Asclepius. The, the, the cult leaders would give you something to drink and you would take that sedative and you would sleep and non-poisonous serpents would crawl over you and if that serpent crawled over you, maybe that was a sign that Asclepius, that goddess, would, would grant you healing and so all of this practice would take place. Go worship the emperor. Go worship Asclepius. If you wanted to worship Athena, there was a place where you could worship her as well. And so there were many places of idolatry. Zeus worship was right there in Pergamum. The altar of Zeus was there. Later it would be excavated taken to Berlin, Germany. Uh, Hitler would gain some inspiration from that altar of Zeus, but Pergamum boasted of it first. This has to be a really tough place to be a Christian, right? 
all around you, you see all this false worship, and yet the Christians are called to, to stand firm. We call Pergamum the church that compromised. Boy, there must have been extreme pressure to do that. To burn the incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Maybe you would be kept out of the, the trade guilds, not, not able to do commerce because you didn't participate in these different forms of worship. Some say that parchment use seems to have originated in the ancient city of, of Pergamum. This is the place, this is the context of this letter. And Jesus says, write. Write these words to the messenger of the church at Pergamum. Next, you see the person. You see the person of Jesus Christ. Christ comes to every church and He says, this is how I want to portray Myself. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who is this person? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 16, you see where John sees this, this vision of the Messiah. And in John chapter 1, verse 16, he says, In his right hand he held the seven stars. We learned that that, that represented the seven angels or the seven messengers. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You also see it towards the end of Revelation. You see this same sword in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15. When Christ comes, it says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. will tread the wine presses, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So here is Jesus Christ. And He's not portrayed as this babe in swaddling clothes. He's not portrayed as this Savior on the cross with, with nail-pierced hands. He's pictured as one with a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword almost coming from his mouth. I think Caleb gives us some insight into what that stands for. Uh, Miss Wendy was, was teaching my children on Wednesday night about uh, the armor of God. And I found this around the, the house that Caleb colored and drew. And it says here, the sword of the Spirit. What is, this, what is this sharp two-edged sword coming from the mouth of Christ? Right here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says this, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. This is what this sword stands for. So here, when Christ is portrayed to the church at Pergamum, He is portrayed as the one who comes with the sword. And time after, after time in Ephesians, even in the book of Hebrews, the sword is this. It's the Word of God. And it comes from His mouth. The Word, right? The Word. Capital W. In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. And He speaks the Word. The little Word. The, the Word of God. He speaks these words and He comes to this church and He says, oh, I have a message for you. And it's a two-edged sword. It's a message that going in, it pierces and it cuts and it convicts. But as it comes out, it heals and it mends and it gives life. This is really figurative for, for judgment based on the Word. Christ would come to Pergamum and He said, I'm going to judge you based on My holy Word, based on My holy commands. They knew all about the sword. For that Roman sword was a symbol of Rome and a symbol of, of Rome's rule and Rome's judgment. 
And so when Pergamum would read this, that, that sword was a common image in their life. But he says, I want you not to be afraid of the Roman sword. The sword you really need to fo- focus on and concentrate on is the sword of the Lord. The sword of Christ. The one that condemns and heals. You know what we need in our churches today? You know what we need in the, in the state of Georgia today? We need the Word of God to come and to pierce hearts. We need the Word of God to come and, and to pierce in and to divide and to convict, but then to heal and to, and to pierce us and to touch us that we don't just say, oh, that was nice. Oh, that was good. That... But then we respond. This is the way Jesus portrays Himself. This is the person. He gives a praise. The place, the person. Here's the praise in verse 13. Jesus says, I know you. He always knows His church. I know you. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Wow. I know where you dwell. The city Pergamum. Where Satan's throne is. This throne is so central to the book of Revelation. In almost every chapter you see the throne and it's either something that's flowing to the throne like praise or it's something that's flowing out of the throne. But here, and almost only here, you see a different throne and it's not Christ's throne. Whose throne is it? It's Satan's throne. He says, where Satan dwells. Well, that's scary, isn't it? Maybe this Satan's throne, maybe it referred to that altar of Zeus where worship would take place to all these false gods, to Zeus Himself. Oh, how it must seem sometimes. Like Satan has his throne right here in our world, doesn't he? We see him ruling. We see him conquering. We see so many bowing down to the ways of this world and to this, to this evil system. And Jesus praises this church as He says, I know you. I I know this city that you live in where Satan dwells, where it must seem like Satan has his throne. But I have this praise for you. He goes on. He says, yet you hold fast my name. He said, some of you, I've got to praise you for this because some of you in the church at Pergamum, you hold fast to my name. There were some there that they they wouldn't say that name. Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't burn incense to the emperor. They wouldn't sell out for them. They held fast to the name that's above every name. They held fast to the name of Jesus. They said, no, we won't do that. It's not Caesar is Lord. It's Christ is Lord. It's Jesus is Lord. And Jesus comes and He says, oh, church, I praise You for that. Some of you hold fast to My name. He goes on and He praises them for this. He says, and you did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, My faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He praises them because He says this, some of you, you you don't deny My faith. You haven't denied the faith. Even while this guy Antipas was martyred. The the word Antipas, that name was probably like his conversion name when he came to Christ like it was Saul and then it became Paul. This guy maybe becomes a Christian and he's he's named Antipas. It means this against all. (laughs) To live in that city, wouldn't it be like you would have to be against all, against everything. I'm against Zeus. I'm against Asclepius. I'm against the emperor. I'm, it's like I'm against all, but, but Christ is Lord. Let me tell you about Antipas. Tradition says that Antipas was martyred. Scripture says that Antipas was martyred. Tradition would say this, that he was slow roasted in a brass bowl. Slow roasted in a, in a brass bowl. We think 
some of the things that we're seeing on TV, right, with, with ISIS and with beheadings, and we think some of that is extreme. Can you imagine being slow roasted in a brass bowl? And this was Antipas. Some say, now you listen to how sick and twisted this is, some say that that brass bowl was a brass bull, that it actually enclosed up, and that Antipas was put inside, and the tormentors would slow roast him alive, but inside that brass bull there were these pipes coming out of the bull's mouth. And so as the person roasted alive, and they, oh, they made almost like a bull sound. And there in that bull, that they, would, they would roast Antipas. And Antipas went against everybody. And he was killed. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Boy, it's tough. But you hold fast to my name. And you don't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Just like the church at Smyrna, this church was under persecution. And this one guy, he paid the ultimate price. I wonder about us, would we be so bold to hold fast to Jesus? Well, it doesn't matter what the world wants to do, how the world wants to shape me. I'm going to not deny faith. Just like Antipas, if it costs me everything, no, Jesus is Lord. Christ is on the throne. May we do the same. With this church, there was a problem. And we see that problem in verses 14 and 15. Jesus has this to say, that word that you don't want to see in verse 14, but... But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. He says you have this problem. And the problem really is this. Bottom line, the problem in your church, Pergamum, is compromise. It's compromise. And it's come about through false teaching. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This takes us all the way back to Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24 when we read about this prophet, Balaam. Balak came in and hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. When you think about Balaam, he was basically the prophet that sold out. He, he gave in to money. He gave in to evil. And he said, yeah, I'll compromise. I'll, I'll, even, I'll even go against my own people. God wouldn't let him, but he was the sellout prophet. He eventually led others, he led Israel into immorality and idolatry. You can read about this even in Numbers 31. You would learn eventually Balaam was killed. Ironically, you know how Balaam was killed? With a sword. He was killed by the sword. Jude would talk about him in his letter when he would write about false teachers. Second Peter would talk about Balaam in his letter when he would write about false teachers. So Balaam became this, this horrible illustration of a, a false teacher who would compromise. I like what one commentator from Dallas Theological says about this. He says, The doctrine of Balaam, therefore, was the teaching that the people of God should intermarry with the heathen and compromise in the matter of idolatrous worship. This was a problem in the church. But he goes on, he talks about another teaching that was a problem in the church. In verse 15, look at it. He says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, we've already seen that, that name come up in the church at Ephesus. And the name basically means this, to rule the people. We said perhaps it was this teaching where the clergy are exalted, right? 
the, the clergy you know, are, are the exalted ones over the lay people and, and they can make the rules and they can do the teaching. Or maybe it's the clergy even teaching the people it's okay to sin in this area. So here's the problem in the church at Pergamum. False teaching of compromise said this. It's okay. It's okay to compromise. It, it's okay to let Rome influence you. It's okay. I mean, you've got to do business in the trade guilds. I mean, it's okay. It's just a little pinch of incense to Caesar. It's okay. It's okay. And yet, in contrast, you have this one faithful Antipas who didn't compromise. Don't you think we see it in the church in America today? Can't you look at the church in North America today and see those that compromise? And it starts with the teaching of Balaam. And it starts with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you start to see the ministers who are compromising in life. And then they start to teach others to compromise. And they introduce maybe immorality. Maybe you see the ministers practicing sex sin. Or maybe you see the ministers teaching sex sin. Or maybe you see the denominations teaching sex sin. And they say, well, it's okay. Well, well, what this means for today is we can just we can change this the way we want it. We want to change this, and we can compromise God's word, and we can compromise this. I mean, it's okay. It's just it's just something little. What is compromise? Compromise is this. It's lowering our standards. Whenever we lower our standards, we compromise. We sell out like Balaam. We say it's it's okay. We tend to compromise in two areas. We tend to compromise belief and behavior. Belief and behavior. We compromise our belief and we say, well, you know, it's okay. This doctrine could kind of sneak in. And yeah, we, could, we may could start teaching this. Or we compromise our behavior and we say, it's okay if we, if we do this and if we say this and if we go this place. And so it's, it's really easy to start to let that slip in. And, and this was the church at Pergamum. How easy it would be to just go along with everything that was around them. I wrote down... Oh, how we see it today. The sin of Pergamum is the sin of our church in North America. We see compromise. We see it in the church. We see it in the lives of ministers. We see it in the lives of members. We see truth watered down. We compromise and we call it tolerance. We compromise and we call it diversity. We compromise and we tell ourselves we're just being open-minded. We compromise and we like to say, well, we're just being relevant. We compromise and we say, that's no big deal. We compromise and we say, it's just something little. And slowly but slowly, Satan's throne just gets to be bigger and it gets to be more powerful and it gets to be built up and we just look the other way. Oh God, that there would be some among us that would be like Antipas. Now I'm not turning back. I'm not going to compromise. Jesus is Lord. So what do we do? We stand at this turning point in 2014 that we would turn. Oh, that we would turn to God. What we have to have is a revolt. Your pastor is almost encouraging you to revolt. We need a revolution. What do you revolt against? The evil system. And here's how the evil system comes. It comes to seduce. 
It comes to tell you it's okay. You, you could just, you, you need to compromise in this and it, and it wants to pull us in. Just become more and more like the world. Just give Satan more and more of a, of a throne in your life and then all of a sudden truth gets watered down and things start to go and we think, oh no, what a mess we're in. What's the cure for compromise? Separation. The cure for compromise is separation. We, we saw it in, in Nehemiah Wednesday night, what did the people in Nehemiah do? They, they separated themselves. That's what holiness is. The word holy means to be set apart. And we have to be set apart. The church at Pergamum had to be set apart from, from their environment. And what are we set apart to? Well, we're set apart to God. Set apart from sin and set apart to God. This is the sin of Pergamum. Sadly, it's the sin of modern day America. So the fifth P is this, the prescription. What's the prescription? What's the medicine? Christ never gives the problem without giving the prescription. Here's the, here's the prescription. You've seen it again, but in verse 16, here it is. Two words. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. He told the church at Ephesus, repent. Repent. What is repentance? It's a turning, Right? It's to be going one direction and to turn. I want us to talk about this word repentance on your handout. Repentance is three C's. It's confession, contrition, and change. First, it's confession. It's confession. Confession in two areas, mind and mouth. Mind and mouth. What is repentance? It's saying, God, I confess, I agree with you. In my mind, this is sin. I think differently. And I confess it in my mind, in my, in my attitude. But it's also mouth. It's even saying it. Lord, I confess this to you. This is sin in my life. I've compromised in this area. It's confession of mind and of mouth. The next C says this. It's contrition. That's a church word, okay? It means this, brokenness over sin. They were really sorry about this sin that we're committing. It's contrition in two areas. You ready? Emotions and expressions. Emotions and expressions. When we're really sorry, when we have this real godly sorrow that Corinthians tells us produces repentance, we'll have contrition in two areas. In our emotions and in our expressions. Sometimes there will be tears of repentance. Sometimes it will be. We're, we're weeping over this like the people in Nehemiah's time where they were broken over sin. And sometimes it will affect us emotionally. A lot of times it will affect our expressions. We, we do things. Our actions are a little bit different because we're genuinely repenting. Our expressions change. Sometimes in Scripture it would lead people to go and to give back to the poor the money that they robbed. Remember Zacchaeus? If I've cheated anyone, I'm going to go back and I'm going to make this right. Contrition. It starts maybe in the emotions, but it expresses itself in a number of different ways. Repentance is confession, contrition, and here's the last one. It's change. It's a change. A change of will and a change of works. Will and works. The will, the desire changes. And the works change. This is what repentance looks like in our churches. It's what repentance looks like in our church, oh, how we need to see godly repentance in the United States of America. We need it in our churches. Here's the possible judgment. The 6P, the possible judgment. If you don't take the medicine, what's going to happen? Verse 16, he says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. 
and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the possible judgment. He says, if you don't repent, if you don't take the medicine, I'm coming with the sword to judge you. That's the sword of, of my mouth. The symbolism is this. It's judgment based on the word of Christ that Christ would come to this church and He would judge with the words. Antipas, he felt the sword of Rome. This church, they would feel the sword of Christ and He would speak His command to them. In beautiful language, every church closes with a promise. And here's the, here's the promise. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. To the one who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In every letter, Christ comes and He makes this promise to the overcomer. In 1 John 5.5, 5, we learn this, that the overcomer is the one who believes that Jesus is the Lord. And so you are an overcomer, and I am an overcomer, and these promises are for us as well. But He says this to the overcomer. Two promises. One, you're going to get hidden manna. Hidden manna. What does this mean? Well, remember back in the Old Testament, that heavenly manna that, that God provided for His people. This is God's provision. Hidden manna. Christ would say, I'm the bread of life. Christ would say, I'm the bread from heaven. Hidden now, but revealed to you. Christ is the one that will meet our needs. And so what is this promise? It's God's provision in Christ. We have hidden manna. We have the bread of life. He's now ours. He'll meet all of our needs one day. He is salvation. He is life. The next promise, He says this, I'll give Him a white stone with a new name written on it. White stone with a new name written on it. This one's from Mount Chihaw, Alabama. Sometimes I need to get away. You know, one time I got away into the mountains, Chihaw, and, and just got alone with God and His Word and let God's Word speak to me and fill me. And I picked this up just as a reminder of my time with the Lord. Kind of like a, a stone of remembrance, you know, to remember that time. But it's, it's white. All around the Mount Chia, you can find these white stones. And this area had white stones too. Now, Brother Doug knows as you start to do history, you find a lot of different, you know, answers in history. This person describes it this way or this event this way. And that's how it is with this white stone. There were a lot of different uh, theories about what that white stone was. There was perhaps this custom of giving people the white stone as the ticket into the, into the Colosseum, into the games. This is your ticket to the event. So if you have the white stone, what do you gain? Access. Access into the, to, into the event. Maybe that was the, the symbolism, right? That Christ is our, our ticket. That He is our, our entrance. There was a, another custom of two stones, a white stone and a black stone. And, and as the judge would rule the verdict, he would, he would either give, extend the black stone, you're guilty, or the white stone, you're pardoned, you're free. Maybe that's the imagery, right? That Christ is our, our pardon, that Christ is the one who pays for our, our deliverance. Some would say that it was even this, this charm, this identity thing that you would, that you would wear. Nonetheless, all, all of those would fit, wouldn't they? This white stone with the new name. Your identity. Is it Christ or culture? Who do you let define you? Culture or, or the Savior who gives the white stone with the new name? 
Some have said that the only thing significant there is, in fact, just the new name. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, God says, The nations shall see your righteousness, and the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. If you've believed in Jesus, these are your promises. You have hidden manna. You have a white stone with a new name. This morning as we close, just like Pergamum, you have to make a choice. I have to make a choice. Remember how that word Pergamum may have meant married? This morning you have to make the choice. Am I going to be married to the world? Am I going to be married to that system? Or, or am I going to be married to Christ? Am I going to be the bride of Christ? This morning the choice is yours. Who will you marry? Charles Stanley says, if the church marries herself to the spirit of the times, she'll find herself a widow in the next generation. Scary, isn't it? Wonder about the church in America. Oh church, if we marry ourselves to the spirit of the times, we're just one generation away from extinction. This is the choice you make. The choice this morning is the same. Will you put Satan on the throne? Will you bow at Satan's altar, at Zeus's altar? Or will you put Christ on the throne? Will you bow at His altar? This morning you have the choice. You can say Caesar is Lord. Or you can say Christ is Lord. By our actions, we'll make that declaration. The choice this morning is yours. You can compromise. Or you can stand firm. You can eat the food sacrificed to idols or you can eat the hidden manna. What will you eat? Worldly food? Heavenly food? Black stone? White stone? I ask you this morning, are you compromising? Belief or behavior? It just saddens me because I see denominations doing it. And it's even in that area of sex sin. Now they start to say, this is okay. Our denomination has decided homosexuality is okay. And now not only are they teaching it, but then they pr they're practicing it. And we can do the same sex marriages, right? When you see it, you see it in life. I mean, there are just so many illustrations. Well, we're afraid to talk about this because this is, this is controversial. And so in order to avoid controversy, in order to be relevant, there's parts of the Scripture that we're not going to talk about. This is the sword of the Lord. Proclaim it all or don't proclaim it. And Christ says, I'll come with my word. But every day we make the choice, right? This morning the choice is yours. Maybe we need to stop and repent. I ask you this morning if you're not saved, maybe as I talk about Jesus, you say, I've never made Him the King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know Jesus in this way that you talk about. I would say this, come to the hidden manna. For some of you today, maybe you need to come to Jesus and devote yourself to Him. Receive forgiveness. I invite you to that. What's the key to avoiding compromise? This, this week for you, when you go out in hard places where Satan dwells, what's the key to compromise? It's the Word of God. Oh, that you would be in it every day, praying over it. The challenge this morning is kind of simple. Be devoted. Just be devoted. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Making Christ Known. We invite you to join us again next time for another sermon from Adairsville Baptist Church. For more
more information, visit us on Facebook or online at adairsvillebaptistchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon.